Hi everyone, I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. We have a very empowering hour, and as always, we start with the latest on health and healing. All of the studies I'm going to share with you come from the National Library of Medicine. That's kind of the government's official repository of peer-reviewed literature. And I select the things that can really make a difference in our lives. For example, from the University of Chichester in the United Kingdom, they want to know what is the best form of green tea. And they found in this study that it's matcha green tea, M-A-T-C-H-A. Why? Because it's positive on your heart rate variability and metabolic responses, especially if you're a young adult female. Now, compared to other green teas, higher intake of multiple phytochemicals, the important chemicals that actually cause the medicinal value of a particular food, the matcha green tea stands above all. So I would suggest that you, if you have metabolic syndrome, and that's a whole spectrum, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, prediabetes, that uh, elevated cholesterol, elevated triglycerides, you'll want to have either a cup or two of decaffeinated, and that's the key too, matcha green tea each day, or the capsules, which are non-caffeinated, 200 milligrams, a couple times a day. And that can make a big difference on the quality of your heart. And they measured this in a placebo-controlled, randomized, crossover-designed study. And time-domain heart rate variability metrics were measured better with this than not. So that's important. Now, another study is about a nutrient that we don't take very often, cinnamon. And when we do, we don't use generally enough of it to make a a difference. By the way, that's one of the things you've got to understand about a lot of the vitamins I'm seeing out there and a lot of the products I'm seeing being promoted. In and of themselves, the products are not bad, but do you know anything about the potencies? Do you have enough of one of those 50, 70 nutrients they have, they're throwing everything into every product so they can brag about, we have all these different ingredients. Well, if you've got all those different ingredients, you've got them in a capsule, then you don't have enough of any of them to make a difference, in my opinion. You have to have potency. Same with cinnamon. Now, if you put some cinnamon on your hot, still-cut oatmeal or into a smoothie, that's good. Why? Because a brand new study from the Agricultural Sciences and Natural Resource University in Iran and Punjab Institute of Cardiology in Pakistan shows that cinnamon can help protect your cardiovascular system. Now, when we're talking about things that can contribute to cardiovascular disease, we're talking about diabetes and prediabetes, atherosclerosis, hypertension, all risk factors, and historically, People knew how to use herbs. In fact, I wrote a book. Part of my ancestry is Native American, Cherokee Indian. And so I wrote a book called Secrets of the Great White Buffalo. It took me several years because I wanted to find out all the different herbal remedies of all the different tribes, and there are over 530 tribes. What did they use and what is the science backing it up? Now, unfortunately, in the United States, since the Flexner Commission, which was uh, Rockefeller Sr.'s idea of, let's prove that the medicine that we can control, which is petroleum-based medicine, is legitimate. Everything else, homeopathy, naturopathy, has to be discarded. And that they succeeded very well in doing that. 
So we just didn't use the herbs. No, because, well, it's, it's a cultural belief. There's no science. It's, you know, they're too cheap to be any good, as if the cost of something determines the value of it. And, uh, but indeed, if you look at the work of Dr. James Duke, he was the head of the USDA's uh, biological division, and he was the world's leading expert, certainly in America, of herbal medicine. He invited me down to his office in Washington and also to his home, and he showed me the most magnificent herbal garden I've ever seen. And I said, why don't you take pictures of this and do a story and get this into important publications? People could do this. He grew everything, hundreds of herbs. He knew what everyone did. It's not folklore. There's high-quality science showing that these herbs work, like, for example, ginkgo biloba, one of the oldest herbs in the world. It comes from one of the oldest trees in the world, the ginkgo tree. Uh, when you're running around Central Park in the fall and you smell what seems like vomit, that's actually ginkgo, and uh, the trees are fermenting after they've dropped. Lots of science, thousands of studies on ginseng and different types of ginseng. So one of the things that we now have a lot of good science on is cinnamon. Cinnamon bark contains what are called phenol, P-H-E-N-O-L-I-C compounds, such as cinnamic acid. And what does it do? It protects your body against the risk of cardiovascular disease and cardiac ischemia and hypertrophy and myocardial infarction. Yes, furthermore, cinnamon has very high antioxidants, anti-inflammatory properties, and it's especially good for people who are diabetic or pre-diabetic or overweight or have hypercholesteremia or hypertension. And all of those can lead to heart attack and stroke and death. So good to take your cinnamon each day. Another thing that we should do is... I suggest if you have a house with a basement, first have an inspection in your basement. Do you have any cracks? Anything that could allow a naturally occurring gas to leak in. Now, you wouldn't know this gas is there because much like carbon monoxide, you can't smell it. can't even taste it. I can't see it. It is called radon. R-A-D-O-N. And what why is that important? Because according to the University of North Carolina study, radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer. Now, a new study has found exposure to this invisible odorless gas is also linked to an increased risk of stroke. The study, which examined exposures to middle-aged to older female participants, found that you really raise your risk of a stroke if you're exposed to even moderate amounts of the gas. Just a little non-scientific primer. Radon is a naturally occurring radioactive gas produced when metals like uranium and radium break down in rocks and soil. And then they migrate up. And the gas can make its way into your home through cracks in your basement, walls, or floors, construction joints, and gaps around pipes. Radon is an indoor air pollutant and one of the most deadly, right up there with carbon monoxide. And But you can test for it. For example, I believe that we should all have carbon monoxide uh, alarms in our cars, 
our RVs absolutely uh, in our bedrooms because what happens if there's a leak and you're not aware of it, you're not going to know that you're being poisoned. You could die. People do. So just have a simple and expensive radon test. Have a simple, just like you have a smoke detector, have a carbon monoxide test. And if you have any form of computer, like I have computers in front of me and monitors and a high, high quality camera and lots of electrical equipment, I have a meter that shows me that no electromagnetic frequencies are hitting my body. You should do the same. If you really want to teach your young uh, adult or young child something about the dangers of cell phone, have them measure cell phone on on a table, all right? Then have them put it up to their ear and then put a meter right there. Thousands of times more electromagnetic pulses are going to the body and the brain, the skull, the, than what they should have. If you want to know more about what you should do about 5G and electromagnetic frequencies and smart meters, go to GaryAndAll.com. Go under articles. Go under 5G, and you'll see the, the most definitive article, over 407 pages long with over 3,000 references. So the science is on your side, but you're not being told the dangers of this because of the commercial interest. Just want to share that with you. So, take care of the radon, all right? And uh, finally, from University of Exeter in the United Kingdom, playing an instrument is linked to better brain health as you age. That's good, all right? Also, playing a musical instrument or singing in a choir is great for your brain, all right? Listening is good as passive to classical music because it's more challenging. But uh, you want a sharper brain? Learn an instrument. That's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break because we've got a very important segment coming up. And if you have someone who cares about their health, call them and say, tune in to Gary on PRN.live. He's got something really powerful coming at you in just a moment. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. We're broadcast all over the world. As a result, I try to select themes, topics, I write essays, do original investigative reporting that can help people everywhere. Now, what I'm about to share with you is only one of these important segments that everyone should pay attention to all over the world because it impacts every person on the planet. How so? You didn't hear me say a word about January 6th until two years after January 6th because I was waiting for information to come forward, qualified information that could offer a legitimate challenge to what we were told about January 6th or maybe what they said was correct. I don't jump onto things. I wait. And having been a part of the information that I shared with you, this audience, articles, at least 200 original interviews and stories about COVID. I can now say unequivocally with total confidence that almost everything they told you was wrong and those people should be held accountable and now will be. What you're about to hear and see is extremely important because this was what your doctor, your pharmacist, the nurse, 
uh, Fauci didn't want you to know how many people died because of the vaccine. This is something that's really important because this study was just finished. And the engineer, and he's a master engineer, he's not a medical doctor, but what he did, no one else in, that I'm aware of on the planet has done. He spent tens of thousands of hours reviewing specific death certificates and causes of death in Massachusetts, where he lives. He then did the same for New Jersey and for Wisconsin. And what he found is staggering. And you will hear him say, I don't want to say it for him, but you'll hear him say how many people died because of kidney disease due to the vaccine or remdesivir, the medicine that was given. I don't believe anyone should take remdesivir. I believe it's just like, well, it's one of the most dangerous drugs. It's like AZT. No one should take it. And yet, it was the drug given to everyone going into hospital. And why? He'll tell you. But when you add up the numbers that he found, and he's standing behind, in fact, he's so confident in these numbers that he's ascending to multiple states' attorney generals, his entire report, which is a huge report with over 400 graphs of evidence, and he's sending it also to uh, scientific organizations and to the media. What do you want to bet the media doesn't touch it? Not a word of it. So it's a little long, it's 20 minutes, you need to hear this. Every day this week I'm taking a different topic and I'm going to show you the truth that you weren't aware of and how to start connecting different pieces of the puzzle and you start saying, oh, I thought those were all separate. No, that's partly because we think in a monotheistic way, most people do, meaning a single point of reference, a single truth, a single ideology, a single uh, trust. Therefore, we just close the door on anything else. So for those of you who are vaccinated, and the more vaccines you got, the more you put yourself at risk of dying or having all these other complications. And he has all of the complications. Now, there are five other scientists, independent from one another, who've come up with different statistics. The latest statistic was from Dr. McCullough of 17 million dead worldwide from the vaccine. This guy has got a different figure on how many people actually died of COVID. It's really interesting. I've reviewed this carefully, and what he is saying is accurate. So let's go to the clip now. Myocarditis has become the darling of the anti-vax you know, community, but myocarditis is about 1% of the overall vaccine deaths. So the people who are dying were not dying of COVID, they were dying of something else, and I already told you there's something else is blood and circulatory system clotting and bleeding related. So, and, and the fact that younger people are dying, somebody who dies at 70, if the average age of death is 75, somebody who dies at 70, they lost five years on average. Somebody who dies at 60 lost, you know, 15 years. But somebody who dies at 40, they lost a lot of their life. So life years lost is a better calculation. And what it comes out to is, the vaccine killed far, far, far more life years from the American public. So we, we have enough data to, uh, to choke a horse. What about the database that you got, uh, the 500,000? Can you break that down for us? Did you do any analysis on it? Or <laughs> Very good. Right where I was going. So 
Yeah, it's now 500,000 for Massachusetts because we've had updates. I have it all the way through August of 2023. Uh, I also have the Minnesota data. I have, um, my book is coming out in a couple of weeks, The Real CDC. I write under the name Coquin de Chien, and Coquin de Chien is, the initials of that are CDC with a little D. So that's why I say I'm the real CDC. It's really just a pen name that I use. It means naughty dog in French, bad dog. So I like El Gato Malo. He, he does a good job on Twitter and he, he writes real well, uh, but I'm, I'm not Spanish, I'm French. And I don't like cats, I like dogs. So I kind of stole it from him, but it's, so Cocan is, you know, the real CDC. And in that book, I have a lot of data on Massachusetts. The second book will be the real CDC does Minnesota. But in the meantime, I have a document called uh, the CDC memorandum. And I, I, I plan to serve that to the directors of the FDA, CDC, NIH, um, 12 of their underlings, uh, six attorneys general, at least from different states, and I hope to get it before the statewide grand jury of Florida. It's 100 pages of documented um, uh, crimes, um, everything from uttering to fraud to uh, felony murder and depraved heart murder and first degree murder. Uh, but also there's 150 pages of, of graphs and 150 pages probably contain about 400 to 500 graphs. And in those graphs, I break down individual causes of death. What I learned a year and a half ago is that 2020 was a year of excess respiratory in more, more than circulatory. And all of a sudden on a year boundary, when we started vaccinating people in 2021, all the causes of death, the, the greater excess shifted. In fact, the, the excess respiratory, mostly pneumonia, we'll just say J18.9 pneumonia unspecified, that was used quite a bit. That, that dropped, that was, the, the marginal excess difference got cut in half, okay? So the excess that had occurred from the baseline years of 2015 through 19 that went up in 2020 for the big year of COVID in Massachusetts, that difference was cut in half year over year, while at the same time, the blood and circulatory uh, causes of death went up instead of down. So COVID went down, respiratory went down, all causes went down. At the same time, the vaccine went up and acute post-hemorrhagic anemia, that's sudden blood loss anemia, uh, 89% of which was non-traumatic that I found. Okay, so you have a, a doubling of acute post-hemorrhagic anemia, sudden blood loss anemia. That means like something in your body blew apart. What it, I'll just tell you, it's aortic dissections, um, aneurysms that, that burst, um, gastrointestinal hemorrhages. These are things that have become, I don't want to say common, but certainly less than rare or more, more than rare, you know, however you want to say that. It's no longer rare. It's now showing up in the deaths of people who are on average 16 years younger than during the COVID year. So you have, you have a change in the symptoms by which people die from respiratory to circulatory and blood. Cardiac arrhythmia is up. Pulmonary embolism is up. So cardiac arrhythmia, you have a, a, a change in the electrical uh, system of your heart where the PQRST peaks and, and, and waves and drops kind of one might step on the next wave and the heart will can't figure out what to do. Do I contract? Do I expand? And it just stops. So you fibrillate, right? So you have people dying in their sleep. You also have people dying on the field. Um, some people are dying before myocarditis even presents itself. Myocarditis has become the darling of the anti-vax you know, community, but myocarditis is about 1% of the overall vaccine deaths. 1%. So by only talking about myocarditis, you diminish the, the overall by two orders of magnitude. So the number of vaccine deaths, if you look at myocarditis, just multiply it by 100. 
and I'm talking stroke, and there's 50 different kinds of codes for stroke. But so, yeah, so that's what I found. The, um, the, the blood, uh, there's something wrong with blood, uh, with the thrombocytopenia deaths. And um, there's something called I8, which is the, 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 um, the veins and lymphatic vessels, both are messed up. And then the D8, which is the immune mechanism, uh, that's pretty messed up. A lot of people <clears throat> in excess dying from those. And I'm very conservative. And I use a linear least squares to algorithm to determine like what would the next ones be? You know, that's those are big words. All that means is put five points on a graph and try to estimate a line that goes among the five points and then extend that line into the next years. It's it's really it's not complicated. And if the line is negative sloped, I use average. So it's really more, you know, I, I'm I'm very undercounting, if anything, all the deaths. Three things. The symptom spectrum profile, I call it. So what people are dying from, they're dying from uh, like I said, cardiac, stroke, pulmonary embolism, gastrointestinal hemorrhages, aortic arch dissections, um, more than the respiratory, which went down at the same time. And then the age spectrum profile also changed. It dropped 16 years. Well, why is that important? Because if COVID killed at an average age of 81.3 in 2020, and then you have excess deaths that match that almost perfectly at that same age in 2020. But then in 2021, <clears throat> the average COVID age death was about 16 years over the average age of excess deaths. So the people who were dying were not dying of COVID. They were dying of something else. And I already told you the something else is blood and circulatory system clotting and bleeding related. So, and, and the fact that younger people are dying Somebody who dies at 70, if the average age of death is 75, somebody who dies at 70, they lost five years on average. Somebody who dies at 60 lost, you know, 15 years. But somebody who dies at 40, they lost a lot of their life. So life years lost is a better calculation. And what it comes out to is the vaccine killed far, far, far more life years from the American public. That's not even counting the people affected. When you take a 40-year-old out of society, the children are affected, the wives, the brothers, sisters, and they're affected for not just the life of that person, but their own lives. Children growing up without parents are more prone to uh, pathologies such as drug addiction, suicide, and so forth. You're creating those type of pathologies in a whole bunch of kids who otherwise would have grown up with two parents in a happy household instead of growing up depressed without their parents. So that the the effects on society are far reaching, far reaching beyond losing a 95 year old to COVID, such as I, I have a death certificate of a woman, 98 years old. It said she died from heart attack. Who's going to say anything about that? Well, I find the VAERS record. I know I got the right person. She reacted right away to the vaccine. Her heart rate went to 145 beats per minute at 98 years old. And she was dead in two days from a heart attack. That is a vaccine death. Now, as far as I know, that, that's why Kevin McKernan points to me and says Bodwin has some good data, because I haven't even talked about the cancer. Secondary malignant neoplasm of the lymph nodes in Massachusetts is up more than 400% of normal in 2023. It was 258% of normal in 2022. Okay, so the, the short-term or acute effects that I told you about the blood and the um, you know, blood and clotting and circulatory system and heart and so forth, those acute effects have dropped along with vaccine uptake, which has dropped. 
in Massachusetts at 95% uh, first dose, 82% second dose. And I don't even know the third dose is probably in the 40s. But people have stopped taking the vax. Even the ones who said, well, I got it. I did the right thing. It's like, no, you stop taking it because you know there's a problem, but you won't admit it because the local culture in Massachusetts is to vax, vax, vax. We have 600 pharma companies, 47 billion in venture capital financing. I drive by Moderna on my way to get groceries. Pfizer's uh, divisional headquarters for the vaccine is in Andover, Massachusetts. There are 10 companies over a billion revenue in pharma in Massachusetts. There are 50 companies over 100 million in revenue in Massachusetts. And guess what? Guess what was in the top three of purported purported deaths per million in the world after you know a year of COVID it was Massachusetts. It was New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. Belgium was a distant fourth. Massachusetts was 50 percent more, more than Belgium after the first four months of the of the uh, of COVID on July 27th, 2020. So you have all the companies in Massachusetts that stand to gain just happens to be the, the greatest amount of, uh, of COVID purported deaths. And, and you've got me who finds that acute fentanyl intoxication, fentanyl overdose deaths, they were labeled COVID. They tested dead bodies for COVID. Blunt force trauma to the head, blunt force trauma to the torso. I have hundreds of accidental deaths labeled COVID. Now, if they're willing to go so far as to label those with COVID, what do you think they're willing to do to 85 and 95-year-old people who die of heart attacks? They just died in their sleep at 85. COVID, 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 COVID. The COVID deaths were probably, there's no way to tell for sure, you know, so I can say whatever I want because they lied so much on the death certificates, committed so much fraud. In my opinion, after all the work I've done, which is thousands of hours evaluating million a million death certificates from Massachusetts and then Minnesota and some from Vermont, about 80 to 90% of the purported COVID deaths in Massachusetts are absolute fraud. They did not die with COVID being causal in their deaths. I believe 80 to 90%, yep. And I also have a number of people who sent me the cases of their, their children and their spouses. I've looked through a 4,000 page medical report and tried to, I used an optical character recognition because they're, they're being so mean to the families from the hospitals that they're giving them images instead of giving them searchable documents. They're giving them like a picture of a document. So I have to run it through an OCR, optical character recognition software, to pull the words back out and then search for things like vanco, for vancomycin, remdesivir, baricitinib. And you find that I just keep finding the same protocol over and over. Lorazepam, midazolam, fentanyl, crash the guy's... Uh, respiration, and then oh well, he's not getting enough air. We got to put him on a ventilator. They they put him on a ventilator. They get they test them for COVID. They get put on, uh, you know, they get some extra money for making it a COVID case. Then they put him on remdesivir, CMS.gov, on November second. November second, twenty twenty is a big day, because what you'll find is there was no correlation with acute renal failure and COVID for the entire year of twenty twenty, and then. They, they had the EUA for remdesivir. There was one in May and one another one earlier. And then they had one in October 22nd was a big one. <clears throat> but until they started the money flowing, 20% of the entire hospital bill gets jacked. So if somebody goes in, has an ICU stay for half a million bucks, the hospital gets $100,000 if they can pump remdesivir into somebody's veins. Baricitinib is also on that list. The reference is in my book. The link is there. It's on the website. Um, it's on the government's website. This is all true. Now, 
if you incentivize something that much and it gets used and then is it, you know, the kidneys start shutting down and then you get the, the sepsis from either the, um, they do the central line, right? They, they put, they put so much drugs in somebody's body. They can't even use the arm veins. They have to go central line in the jugular vein or something. All these crazy things that they did killed people and they brought them from one thing like, uh, 87% trouble, you know, they were coughing when they entered. But then they went from coughing to testing positive to being put on drugs to then crashing their breathing, being put on a ventilator. Then after they were put on a ventilator, they ended up with an infection. Then they got put on, uh, you know, before the infection, remdesivir, baricitinib, and then um, vancomycin and vancomycin. Finally, in my, I mean, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a bio, I'm an engineer, right? I do investigation. I find things. Everybody was on vancomycin eventually. Everybody. And anytime somebody went on vancomycin, their kidneys were, it was it. It's over. Actually, you know, uh, I follow this guy called Ethical Skeptic on, uh, on Twitter. You saw some of his data. Uh, so you can replicate his charts and you can explain all those things as well? Or can you speak to that? <laughs> yes and no. So he's working from the CDC data and uh, he does an excellent job with what he has. And you know, I mean, like a really excellent job, right? Um, I don't understand some of the stuff he does. I'm taking raw data and I'm, I'm shaping it to communicate it to a broad audience, not to doctors and scientists, but to regular people. I mean, I changed, the, the publisher made me change the subtitle of my book from COVID Facts for Regular People uh, to um, Exposing Public Health Crimes 2020 to 2022. But so he, he's got the same cancer graphs that I have now. So we're kind of converging um, over time on showing the same stuff. It's kind of like, it's kind of like we think similarly in how to display data to people, um, but just graph it differently, you know? Um, so, but, but again, he's using the data the CDC has. I'm using the source data from the death certificates before and after the CDC codes them. Uh, once they apply the codes, now if they apply codes and then they give you a, a category, oh, here's a good one. Here's a really good one. So renal failure. If, if you do, if all you do is a graph on renal failure, you get both chronic and acute. Chronic is you've had, you know, renal failure stage one, two, three, four. Um, and you might, you might eventually die from renal failure. And that goes on a death certificate as an N18 dot whatever, one, two, three, four. Um, whereas if you didn't have a, a problem before and all of a sudden you have, you know, an acute, that means sudden, okay, sudden renal failure, it's called sudden kidney failure, acute kidney injury, or acute renal failure all mean the same thing. So acute is N17, okay? N17.9 is unspecified, and there's a couple in, in the you know, dot ones, twos, threes, I don't really pay attention, but so let's look at N18 chronic versus N17 acute. If you say, wow, renal failure is up 20%, wow, that's really high, there's a lot of people dying of renal failure. And I separate it and I say, well, wait a minute, all the, the excess deaths that occurred in 2020 are no longer available to die. They're dead. So that means, and I look at it and say, oh, chronic renal failure is actually down a little bit, but acute renal failure is up 100%, not 20%, 100%. So when you have record level source data, you can separate more things. You can do this with CDC, but you have to get into it. Do it. It's a lot of work. It's a lot easier for me. I just... I've set up my system and programmed my uh, spreadsheets where I just type in a number. It takes about 15 minutes to run. And when it's done, it's generated all my graphs for me. 
So, so here's, here's the story. Uh, chronic, it's called a Simpsons paradox when two signals step on each other, right? You have negative one plus one, add the two, you get zero. So if you look, say, oh, it's zero. So yeah, there's no problem. Uh, or, or, hey, it's only 20%. It's, oh, that's pretty bad. Actually, 20% is really bad. But, oh, it's 20%. I separate them like, no, actually, it's up 100%. And what that equates to, to give you an idea, 2,000 extra acute renal failure deaths in Massachusetts in 2021 and 2022. I'm not even talking 2023 yet. 2,000. In Minnesota, same thing happened. 1,600. In Nevada, same thing happened. In Vermont, same thing happened. It extrapolates to about 100,000 extra souls are gone from this planet. That's who wouldn't have otherwise died from one single cause of death, acute renal failure on their death certificates. I'm not saying it was the only cause of death on their death certificates. I'm saying looking at only acute renal failure, 100 extra souls, 100,000, 100,000. United States, yeah. Now, if you think about that, that's, that's like the biggest epidemic in the history of the United States since 1918, 1919. And nobody's even paying attention to it. It's like this data that I have, like, come on, people, wake up. You know, that's because, oh, COVID, COVID, a million people died. No, only, I mean, they said on stage 171,000. That's pretty close. You know, I, I, I think it was Malone who said that. I, we, we don't know exactly the number, but I'm in that area. I'm in like 100,000 to 180,000. If he wants to say 171,000, I'm there. I'm right next to him saying, yeah, you go, Robert. You're right on. That's how many people died. Now, if they were 81 and lost one year of life per death, that's, you know, 171,000 life years lost. But if you look at acute renal failure, 100,000 extra people died, and they lost on average about 25 years. What is that? 2.5 million, 2.5 million life years compared to COVID, which is only 170,000 life years. And you ruin families, kids growing up without their parents. In fact, it goes down into the 25 to 44 range. There's significant excess. In this, the CDC memorandum, you'll see, there's a, like I said, there's about 400 to 500 graphs in that. Now it's got Minnesota and Massachusetts. Um, there's no data and analysis like, like I have. And any state can do this. I'm just one guy in a, you know, in my, just an engineer thinking pragmatically. Startling material. And yet today, the CDC is still promoting vaccines for pregnant women, for children, for infants, for toddlers. And there's no risk of death from them. More people will die because of the vaccine and they don't care. And yet it's, the statistics are in their own records. Where's the media? Why haven't they done a Pulitzer Prize winning article exposing all this? We expose it every day. They don't. So that should tell you why you shouldn't believe the media. But I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to do a whole report, share it with you, on why you can't trust the media. If you'd like to share your thoughts, please call now, 888-874-4888, our talkback. Your turn, 888-874-4888. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. All right. If you have a call coming in, I'll take it. If you want to share your thoughts, let me just summarize very briefly in lay language what he was saying. And you were listening to an engineer, a master engineer, who does investigations in engineering to find problems. John Boudouin, 
B-A-U-D-O-I-N. We're going to have him on the program very shortly. We had him on a year ago before he had completed his work. He only gave us an insight into some of the initial statistics. Now that is completed. He'll stand behind it. He'll go into any court in the United States. He'll go before Congress. And I hope that those in this audience download today's program from prn.live, go to the archives, and then send this particular interview to Jim Jordan in the House of Representatives. Um, there are several people who would like to have, I'm sure, this under oath so that all these statistics can be brought up. Then he would bring the CDC people in and say, these are your figures he did. He didn't make these figures up. You got 100,000 people died of kidney failure, and these people did not have kidney failure at all? This is only one piece of the puzzle, but it's one you haven't heard before. Now we have the evidence. What was the drug that was used? Remdesivir. What was the first radio program in the United States to give you a challenge to it? This one, in depth. We went to the original work. There was no research whatsoever on uh, remdesivir and COVID. It had been in Africa on the Ebola virus. The death rate was 54%. 54%. It should never have been used. Why it was used? Well, you'll find that out because of how much money they make. That's a separate interview coming up on a different program. I have different topics every day. For example, Glenn Greenwald tomorrow, and we're going to talk about why you can't trust the media and what has happened to real journalism and what happened to what what happened to the Walter Cronkites, the uh, Dan Rathers, the Chet Huntley, David Brinkley, the people that used to bring you information. How biased were they? We're going to get into not trusting the media. But right now, just understand, including members of my own family and close friends who got vaccinated and won't, they don't want to hear this information because, well, I didn't have any bad side effects. There's a clip I'm going to play you tomorrow. It's a short clip from um, Bill Gates. He is promoting the wonderful technologies we could use in vaccines without doing a lot of testing now with the RNA lipid self-organizing. And he says lipid self-organizing nanoparticles. And I'm thinking, wow. Let's go back. Do you remember when I did a series of discussions about what morticians were finding? They couldn't put embalming fluid, formaldehyde in veins. These, it looked like someone had taken a handful of rubber bands and squeezed them together. And their videos, one video alone, one mortician, 80% of all the people that he uh, was preparing for a funeral, he pulled out all these rubbery substances. When those were analyzed, those were the self-organizing nanoparticles that are in all of the vaccines. Oh. And then morticians all over the world started finding the same thing. One in England, one in Wisconsin. Yeah. Then hundreds found it. Then in comes Dr. Cole, who we have on this program. And Dr. Cole, who was one of America's leading pathologists, he did an analysis and it scared him. So they formed a worldwide conference a pathologist that met in Geneva uh, for several days to discuss all the evidence. And they found out this was 
No one knew this was happening. I'm sure the people who invented the vaccines didn't know this was happening, but it was. And then, uh, then he went public with it, and for going public, they came after him, took away his license, practice medicine. He had to sell his clinic, closed down. They've gone after every single person who's had the courage to tell the truth because they have to control the narrative at all cost. So that's, remember, even if you've had a vaccine and you've had no symptoms, you still have those self-organizing nanoparticulate matter in your body. And that's one of the things we've seen because of one of the ways that people die is they end up having the arteries so clogged the blood can't get through, so you get these long blood clots. In fact, Dr. McCullough, who we presented him last week, said that the day before the interview, in a patient who had had a heart attack, they took a three-foot-long blood clot out of the leg. Three foot long. How large are most blood clots? Small. The size of a, a pea or a piece of corn, a kernel. And then when you push between your thumb and forefinger, it turns into like a jelly. You don't never, never, no, no human being in the United States has ever had a three-foot blood clot. It's not possible. With self-organizing nanoparticles, it is. And how many people now died and no one did the autopsy? Only they died of a heart attack. All they died of a stroke. And I would suggest that those of you who've had a loved one die, get an autopsy because you've got a lawsuit. The next phase, once more of these studies come forward, and we have now 3,500 studies today we didn't have at the beginning, showing that they lied about everything. The very first time you knew that there was a substance that could help you, ivermectin, and then hydroxychloroquine, then azithromycin, uh, was on this program. And I did a research paper with, Dr. Rich, uh, with Richard Gale, our scholar-in-residence, and it took us about a month, and we found hundreds and hundreds of studies showing they were safe and effective, in fact, so safe it had been used about five billion times to kill uh, the malaria spirochete. In any case, um, and it won the Nobel Prize. And yet everywhere in the media, there was a systematic campaign, clearly created by the deep state, that this was horse dewormer. So think of all the people, like Rachel Maddow, who was condemning people for using horse paste, and it's dangerous, when in fact it could have saved people's lives. How many? The most current statistic I have is 90% of all the people who died in the United States could have been alive today. So that's preventable death. That means when they gave a disinformation campaign, that falls in the category of malice of forethought. We have to present all the exculpatory evidence, and there's lots of it, and get more whistleblowers. But every whistleblower comes forward, the government and the administration and Justice Department go after them. And then the social media goes after them. So we've had the truth from day one. And people were afraid to use it because, once again, monotheistic. I believe in Anthony Fauci. I can't believe in anyone else. I believe in the President of the United States and Hillary Clinton. I can't believe in anyone else. And unfortunately, that's not going to change ever in anyone. I haven't seen it. Not in my lifetime. No. People may be forced to change, but not on a voluntary basis. 
forced? Yes, I've seen change when people are forced to change. You've got to change your diet because you've had two heart attacks. You're going to have a third, the doctor says. Uh, all right, all right. I don't want to. I, I, I'm, I'm angry at you, Doc. I'm angry at everything. I don't want to give up my hamburgers, hot dogs, french fries. And the Kardashians, I need this. Do you? Okay. You see, don't. it's not a moral judgment about how stupid most people are and how foolish and selfish most people can be. It depends upon the circumstances and conditioning. Circumstances will present an obstacle. Conditioning of how to respond to that is then whether you're going to transcend a problem and grow and learn from it or whether you're going to maladapt to it and end up reinforcing the problem. Like McCarthyism. Like Nazism. So many things that we've done as a group, in a group think, and then we don't ask, how did so many good people do so many bad things? How many smart people do so stupid things? Well, why don't you ask those smart how many, how many, uh, how many, how much money did you make? How much money? And those are the people who are going to stay on the side of Fauci or stay where the money comes. And boy, have they spread the money around hundreds of billions of dollars. Do you think those people are going to voluntarily give it up? Do you know anyone in your life ever that has said, I'm wrong, I have power over others, I don't want to use this power any longer, I shouldn't have that power, I'm surrendering it, and, you know, and going to live a more humble life? I don't know anyone. Do you? No. Those in power want more and don't want to surrender it, even when they've been shown to be wrong about everything. So, that's one of the things we have to face. Now I'm going to show you a clip. This is an interesting clip. Totally different subject, but interconnected. How's it interconnected? Those in power write the rules and have a whole jury of journalists, ethicists, professors, heads of foundations and think tanks who then exonerate them. Like they all get up one morning and collectively on Zoom, they wash their hands like Pontius Pilate and say, this person is innocent. And that's why you've never seen any president of the United States held accountable for the crimes against humanity that they have all engaged in. Regime changes, murder. No one is found guilty. When was the last time you heard of anyone at the CIA, National Security Agency, any of these deep state organizations, the FBI, held accountable? Even though their crimes are demonstrable, they're there. You won't. This clip is just to show you an example of how wrong we are in the media, corporate interest, military-industrial complex, spy complex, and the average citizen. This is about Iraq and the lies. It's a really interesting clip, but it shows you who was really responsible for this. You thought it was George Bush. Well, he was the fool. You know, he kind of reminds me of Alfred E. Newman, not just as a character, but <laughs> what would happen if... If uh, you made the wrong genetic sequencing, most likely if you took a bullfrog and, and uh, George Soros, don't even try that. Or Walrus and John Bolton, don't try that either. I don't think you'll like the outcome. But how is it that we just were so pro-war, so pro-violence, so indifferent to millions of people, children dying? You think we learned something from Iraq, from Afghanistan? Well, then why haven't we applied that same to the innocent children and people of the Palestinians who are anti-terror? Uh, anti Just uh, last week, there's a new video, I'm going to post it, where a whole group, dozens and dozens, were found in a mass grave 
with their hands tied behind their back, blindfolds on, were tortured and beaten, including children. And yet, will anyone in Washington, D.C. care about it? No one. Anything changed? Nothing. In fact, they just passed a $112 billion, more or less, bill, our money given to Israel, given to Ukraine. Will it change anything? It will just prolong the suffering of the innocent. And yet, no irony, no introspection, because the people in control acknowledge one another, and no one's going to say they're wrong about anything. This gives you a different insight into the Iraq conflict. Probably heard a lot about Iraq. A lot about George Bush, Dick Cheney, oil, weapons of mass destruction, and if you watch Johnny Harris, you may even know about Paul Wolfowitz. But our story has a different cast. Three men you didn't know ruined Iraq. One, Bill Clinton, you know well, but probably don't think of much when it comes to Iraq. Another, Paul Bremer, you may be more familiar with than you realize. And the last, William Dupuy, you've probably never even heard of. This isn't an exhaustive story of everything that went wrong in Iraq, partly because that would take, well, a much longer video. But it is a critically important part that stretches back to the 1970s. This is the story of how an idealistic project of nation-building gave way to widespread violence, rampant poverty, and persistent political instability. How an attempt to install humane government brought about some of the most profound human suffering since World War II. It's the story of why democracy failed in Iraq, but it's a different story than the ones you've heard before. It begins with military doctrine, a sometimes technical and dense subject, but it's really, really crucial to understanding the Iraq War, and we're gonna make it easy. In the 1970s, the US military was in shambles. Somehow, the power that had won the Second World War and remade global politics had been beaten, badly, by Vietnamese guerrilla forces. One officer had an idea why everything had gone so poorly. His name was William Dupuy, and he was tasked with a groundbreaking responsibility, revising American military doctrine. By 1973, Dupuy was watching intently as the Israeli army achieved a remarkably rapid victory in the Yom Kippur War and knew that there was something worth learning from. What he saw was that the traditional two levels of war were defunct. Strategy, the broader objectives of a war and means of achieving them, and tactics, how to win individual engagements, no longer captured the realities of modern war, as militaries developed increasingly powerful weapons with ever greater range. Soon, Dupuy's observations would give rise to the conception of a new intermediate level of war, operations, concerned with rapid military campaign success. In the 1990s, Saddam got his first taste of this new military doctrine in the first Gulf War, as America and its allies pushed Iraqi forces out of Kuwait in a matter of days. But when it came to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the doctrine proved almost too effective. While the coalition had a politically complex strategic objective, regime change in Iraq, America, haunted by the ghost of Vietnam, became obsessed with the operational goal, destroying Iraq's warfighting capabilities, and doing so quickly. In a matter of weeks, American forces delivered tens of thousands of bombs. Any semblance of an Iraqi state melted away, 
in the face of the onslaught. While breaking the Iraqi regime made for a quick military victory, it set the stage for a devastating political defeat that would soon... To our WBI audience, we're going to say goodbye. And for everyone else, continue listening at prn.live. But it wasn't just shiny new military doctrine that shattered the Iraqi state, and crucially, the offensive began well before 2003. After the first Gulf War, the United Nations voted to implement a massive sanctions package against Iraq, the largest ever of its kind. Side note, China and the Soviet Union voted with the US for this proposal. Can you imagine that today? Yeah, history was super ended. But also, yes, Saddam was that bad. Anyways, under President George H.W. Bush, the U.S. largely adhered to the U.N. sanctions goal, compliance, getting Saddam to comply with conditions and dismantle a number of Iraqi weapons programs. But when Bill Clinton beat Bush in the 1992 elections, the purpose of the sanctions changed. Even after Iraq's weapons programs had largely been dismantled, compliance basically achieved, Clinton continued to press the sanctions to devastating effect on the Iraqi state. Barred from exporting its only major product, oil, Iraq's economy collapsed. Compliance was no longer the goal. In the words of Madeleine Albright, Clinton's Secretary of State, quote, we're talking about regime change. And thanks to the sanctions, the regime was changing, but not in the way Albright seemed to mean. Until recently, Iraq had been a top-down style autocracy, but the embargoes and economic collapse transformed it into a web of clientelistic patronage and corruption. As state capacity dwindled, its regular functions transformed into black market transactions. In a word, the Iraqi state was diminished, a shadow of its former self. Decreasing Saddam Hussein's maniacal hold on power is cause for celebration, but the collapse of a state hurts far more than the strongman. Following reports that excess deaths from starvation and illness increased dramatically in the 1990s, with perhaps hundreds of thousands of children dying as the public health sector proved unable to cope, Albright replied, We think the price is worth it. By 2003, this enfeebled Iraqi state stood less of a chance than ever against Dupuis' lightning military doctrine. Saddam's regime crumpled. That kind of thing makes winning a war easy, but the part after... It's, it's difficult. Difficult. Lemon difficult. In the resulting security vacuum, violence and looting spread like wildfire, leaving Iraqi civilians terrified and vulnerable. The coalition had to bring order, so they brought in Jay Garner. Garner, a career military man with degrees from Florida State and Shippensburg State Universities, saw his mandate as limited. Stop the violence, punish Saddam's top thugs, hold elections, and leave. In his own words, quote, what we need to do is set an Iraqi government that represents the freely elected will of the people. It's their country, their oil. But soon, Garner was out. Taking his place at the head of the coalition's provisional government was Louis Paul Bremer III. Ladies and gentlemen. This guy. We got him. Bremer, a graduate of Phillips Andover Academy, Yale and Harvard, whose father was president of Christian Dior Perfumes, cut a stark contrast with Garner, and he had an equally different vision of what Iraq needed. 
He was appointed on May 11, 2003. By the 16th, he issued his first decree, a political purge. Any and all members of Saddam's political party, fully 10% of Iraq's population, were fired and banned from public employment. Despite Garner's warning that it would cripple the state and the CIA Baghdad station chiefs that it would put, quote, 50,000 people on the street, underground, and mad at Americans. Shortly thereafter, Bremer met with President Bush to request permission to expand his purge. He wanted to dissolve the Iraqi army. Despite this contradicting the original Pentagon plan for Iraq, Bush told Bremer it was his call. Again, Bremer was warned by Garner, who said, quote, You can get rid of an army in a day, but it takes years to build one. On May 23rd, less than two weeks in Iraq, Bremer followed through with the second decree of his term. With the stroke of a pen, he rendered 400,000 men, either young and healthy or old and respected, but all trained in violence. This is just to give you an insight into what happens when people who have ideological, political, and economic agendas, oil, in this case, in part, end up trying to be believe, or maybe they do believe, that they're bringing democracy, freedom to a country when they've destroyed everything that the country had stood for. And then you have absolute anarchy. And from that anarchy, look at what happened. Look at how many Americans were killed. Look at how many civilians were killed. Look at all the bombs we used. Look at Fallujah, where the hospital in Fallujah had photographs. They, they gave me the photographs. I had the photographs of my film, and you see all these children born with the uh, depleted uranium, adverse effects, birth defects, cyclops baby, one eye in the middle of the head, no brain in, in the skull. That was because of Bremer. That was because of Bill Clinton. That was because of George Bush and Colin Powell, everyone else that had a participating factor or input into it. Did we care? No. Did we learn anything from this? No. And then look at how long it took and what is Iraq today? It is a vassal state of Iran, who is the most powerful person, Muktasadr. And uh, so now you have a country that we spent all this money and lives and suffering to get, and it's a disaster. What do you think has happened in Yemen? What do you think is happening right now with the same mindset with uh, giving more money and weapons uh, to Ukraine? We're giving billions upon billions of dollars and uh, nothing else as far as a, a sanction to Israel. We just can't get it right ever. And that's because the people in power, they can do whatever they want and they'll be held harmless. Just some thoughts. Look forward to seeing you all back here tomorrow. Have a nice day, everyone.